Hi, I'm Jeremy Ullman, and this is Abstract, a podcast where I'll be interviewing graduate students to learn about their research in a way that makes it accessible, bringing into the discussion aspects that are fun but challenging, covering a day in the life, and also just throwing around cool theories and groundbreaking findings that they've come across in their readings. My goal here is to tap into the wealth of information swirling around graduate students' minds, culminating from months to even years of research and reading. We're going to harness that knowledge together, one episode at a time. Hey, before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of topics you can expect to hear about on today's episode. If you already listened to episode 17, awesome, you have a bit of background in virology. Today we're going to be diving into HIV and hepatitis C. So we discuss transmission, immunosuppression, the first cure for a virus, the history and branches of statistics, and a ton more fascinating topics. If you want to get a list of those topics, they are available in the description of today's episode. Let's get started. Adam Palliou is a first-year PhD student in epidemiology at the University of Washington. He received his master's in epidemiology from McGill University and his bachelor's of science with honors in biology from Mount Allison. His research interests focus on HIV and hepatitis C, and the intersection of these diseases in people who use drugs, and how all of it is influenced by structural inequalities and social determinants of health. Adam has published in the field of viral hepatitis policy, and his more recent work related to COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic. You can find links to these papers in the episode's description, a couple of which are found in Nature. His research interests also include epidemiological and statistical methods and their application. He's received several awards for best presentations and posters at conferences, as well as Young Investigator Awards. Additionally, he's the recipient of the Ruggles Gates Award for High Academic Standing and showing promise in the ability to do original research from Mount Allison's Department of Biology. And he was a CanHepsi Fellow during his master's as well as a recipient of an FRQS Master's Training Award. We're lucky to have him on the podcast today, and I look forward to extracting his knowledge over the next half hour. Adam, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. So this is is great. We realized like about a week ago that we have an incredible number of mutual friends, yet we've never actually met in person, so we'll consider this ground zero. So congrats on starting a PhD. Thank you. That's great. Not everybody who finishes their master's decides they want to stay in it. What is it about the master's experience that you had that convinced you to continue into a PhD? So my master's experience was actually a bit unusual. So instead of doing the normal two years, what most people do, it actually ended up being over three years for various reasons. Mm-hmm. It was because I did my first year of classes my second year, I actually ended up getting a job offer from someone to do some work in Barcelona. So for the last two years of my master's, I actually did quite a bit of traveling and some uh, consulting work on the side, which led to some of those papers that you've mentioned. In the third year, since it was a bit low stress, since the thesis was spread over two years, I was kind of able to, you know, take a break, take some time off during it, travel as I was working. There was the next logical step in terms of my education. I wanted to learn more about epidemiological methods and all of that. So I decided to do a PhD, and that was always kind of the plan, was to do a PhD after my master's. 
the master's was never the end goal. So we'll see what I end up doing after my PhD, but that was kind of the next step. That's the kind of the education level of depth and knowledge that I want to become comfortable with the subject matter that I'm studying. So do you have aspirations to teach at a professorial level in universities? Well, as we all know, the job market isn't the greatest. So if I'm lucky <laughs> enough to get one of those jobs, that'd become like a dream come true, right? If you could teach for a living like that, I think it would be quite nice. Okay. Um, we'll see if I could actually get one. And I know you did say that you're not sure what you want, but I guess starting a PhD is as good a time as any to start thinking about your future. So if I might just ask, even if you haven't thought about it, if we could think about it now for a second, if you're embarking on a PhD and you're, and you're already aware of the fact that getting a professor position is difficult, what else would you like to do? I mean, are, would you be content being a researcher? Oh, absolutely. There's this idea in academia that after you do a PhD, if you don't stay in academia, you've kind of failed. And there's a lot of pushback on that. And I would also push back on that because there's so many awesome jobs that you can do with this education that you have that you get in a PhD. You can go into industry and actually make way more than that you'd ever make in academia and still apply research in a real world setting. Or you can go into business. Um, there's a lot of people who are in epi epidemiology who end up doing like data science stuff and end up going to work at different um, companies such as like Stitch Fix or NHL organizations. So these skills are very transferable to other things. So not to be really limited by the world of academia, that's really just one option among many that are, that are available to really anyone with a PhD that has like a strong, you know, statistical data methods foundation that will help you like study design, um, which is something you learn in epidemiology of how to compare quantity A versus quantity B can really be applied to several different fields beyond just academia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. I'm actually glad that you're on the podcast talking about industry because you said that you had experience in your last year working outside of the, the stereotypical academic environment, right? Doing some consulting. And so that, I guess, will bring an interesting flavor to our discussion. So just to start getting into some of your research-based topics and interests, in your introduction, it mentions HIV and hepatitis C. I'd like you to just kind of define what those are and what particularly attracted you to this kind of research focusing on these diseases. So HIV is human immunodeficiency virus, and it is a virus that's existed in the human population probably since the 1970s, but we really discovered it in the 1980s when it started appearing as these splotches on skins called Kaposi sarcoma in gay men in New York and San Francisco in the United States. And they kind of, these people were very sick and they were dying very fast. And so there's the whole story of the HIV and AIDS crisis that has followed from that. Mm -hmm. And another disease that also is HCV, so hepatitis C, or the hepatitis C virus, so I'll call it HCV for short. Mm -hmm. And the HCV virus was also discovered in the 1980s it actually recently, the discoverers of it, one of them who I know, Michael Houghton, just won the Nobel Prize for discovering it. Wow. And the Nobel Prize in medicine, they just got it awarded. So congratulations to him. They discovered it and they found that this disease kills about currently 400,000 people a year. Okay. It's a really important disease and there's treatment for it. And these diseases are transmitted in similar ways, HIV and hepatitis C. So they're transmitted through sex. They're transmitted when people use drugs through injection and share equipment. They can be um, transferred to one another. Hepatitis C can be transferred in very rare cases with razors, 
HIV can be transmitted through different routes that don't transmit through the HCV, such as maternal to child. But the two main routes where these two intersect is through drug use and through sex. They overlap. You see these two viruses occur in the same populations. Right. Yeah. If the transmission is similar, how do the viruses operate within the body? Do they also have similar effects on immune system and the like? So HIV affects your immune system and it attacks your immune system. And that's the main part of the body that it primarily infects are your CD4s, which are part of your immune system. And they're the kind of the alarm bells of the immune system. After a while, the longer you have it and control the HIV infection, the more likely it's to infect other cells. And then you get this HIV reservoir where you can't really get rid of it, even if you do treat it to zero. Mm -hmm. But that being said, if you do treat it to zero, HIV people who are on HIV treatment now live as long as people who are not on HIV treatment. When you say treat it to zero, what does that mean? The test to see if you have HIV in your blood is called an RNA test. So it measures the RNA in your blood, which are the number of copies of the active virus. So the tests have a certain limit of detection, like all tests do. So if it's above that, then it means you're detectable. And if it's below that, then it's zero or undetectable. Got it. There's this, pub, there's this actually civil society campaign around U equals U, which I'm really happy I can talk about because it's undetectable equals untransmittable. So not only people who are on HIV treatment who have undetectable viral loads, which happens in like, I'm not a clinician, but happens within a year in some cases. And these people who are virally suppressed cannot pass on HIV through sex. So they've had these crazy studies where they've had these really big studies where they looked at like 4,000 partners, over mm -hmm. 70,000 acts of unprotected sex, and have had zero HIV transmissions wow. among people, couples who are serodiscordant, where one has HIV positive and the other one's negative and they're on medications. They've had zero transmissions. So if you're on HIV medication and you're properly virally suppressed, you cannot transmit HIV and you can have sex without a condom and not transmit it. That's mind-blowing. Which is, which, is, which is so different from the 80s. And yeah. so hepatitis C, which for the longest time was called hepatitis non-A, non-B because they couldn't <laughs> find the virus. And so this non-A, non-B, you saw it would be through blood transfusions, and a lot of people die from it. But the thing is, is it's called the silent killer because you can be asymptomatic for 20 to 30 years with hepatitis C and then it presents with liver cancer. And then it's kind of too late. It's a lot, it costs a lot more to manage. But in 2012, and the people who won this, I think they won a Nobel Prize for it as well for the medication for hepatitis C because it's the first real cure we've ever had for a virus. So one pill once a day for 12 weeks for hepatitis C, 95% of people are cured of the virus and they feel better after. And it's the only medication that we have for a virus that's an antiretroviral that actually cures the virus, at least that I'm aware of. And that's what I've been told by people who know much more about treating viruses than I do. Well, so why are we still studying hepatitis C if we have a cure? Can't we just check that off and focus on things like cancer now? Because you have to deliver it, right? It's the same thing that's going to happen with COVID, right? Just because you get the vaccine, it's not like an on-off switch. You have to make all the doses. You have to get it to people. You have to get people into the clinic. They have to take the medication for the right time. You have to find everyone. You don't know everyone who's infected. They don't know that they're infected. You have to go and find them. You could say that for every disease, like measles. We have an amazing vaccine. Why isn't that just gone? 
No, no, wait, hold on a second. I'm not saying that we should get rid of the vaccine. The vaccine is yeah. a great thing or the pill. I'm saying what more research needs to go into hepatitis C, right? You said you're doing research on HIV and hepatitis C. So yeah. for example, I guess I'll just ask you directly, how does your PhD research build on the current knowledge on hepatitis C? So my PhD research is probably going to go more towards HIV. Okay. But I will, for hepatitis C, there's still so much research. So there's so many people who don't know that they have it. And so there's a campaign called Find the Missing Million. So there's 71 million people who are infected with hepatitis C are the last estimates globally. Mm -hmm. And out of those 71 million people, 90% of people don't know that they have it. So you need to find these people. And like I said, it's asymptomatic. So you have to have these screening campaigns. Then you actually have to go and find the missing millions. Wow. Okay. So that's and yeah. So there's even actually this guy, Michael Houghton, what the guy who just won the Nobel Prize, he's still working on a hepatitis C vaccine, mm -hmm. which will never confer lifelong immunity. But even at 50% effectiveness, if you give that to people who are more likely to get reinfected with hepatitis C, because being infected with hepatitis C doesn't also incur, incur long-term immunity. So you can get reinfected with hepatitis C after you've gotten it. Okay. So to be able to actually treat it out of the population and to give people is, is going to take a lot of work and to actually implement it. So we do have all of these treatments and treatments are actually getting better. They're getting shorter. There's actually a lot more nuances within treatment that I've not touched on. There's actually like eight different types of genotypes of um, hepatitis C with different effectiveness of treatments for each genotype. And it gets a bit, it gets a bit more complicated, mm -hmm. but just in broad strokes, it's mainly a question of delivery is how do you actually get this pill that we have that's now effective to people. Okay. Hey, thanks for listening, by the way, if you are here right now. I'd like to read you a quick passage from a book I've been reading recently. It's called Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. You might have heard of him. He's a philosopher, although he wouldn't call himself one. Marcus Aurelius succeeded his adoptive father as emperor of Rome in 161 AD. And Meditations remains one of the greatest works of spiritual and ethical reflection ever written. It's from the back of the book. I agree. Now, while Marcus wasn't himself a master's or PhD student, he was someone who studied himself quite closely. And if I could give a degree to him for his expert introspection, then I would do so myself. So the first passage, and hopefully this will be one of many future passages read on abstract during the breaks that we have, it will be from book one of 12, and each passage is numbered. So I will select book one, passage 10. Not to be constantly correcting people, and in particular not to jump on them whenever they make an error of usage or a grammatical mistake or mispronounce something but just answer their question or add another example or debate the issue itself, not their phrasing, or make some other contribution to the discussion and insert the right expression unobtrusively. I'll let that sit and percolate a little bit, and for the time being, we're going to pop back to the episode. So besides just kind of combing the entire population and tapping people on the back of the shoulder and saying, hey, you want to come to my clinic and see if you have hepatitis C, what kind of new, radical, interesting, cutting-edge methods do we have of weeding through the population? Are there any? So there's two approaches I'm going to talk about. Great. So there's one which is a big data approach, which is being done in BC, 
where they're making an algorithm to identify people who may have like all these risk factors for hepatitis C and you're like, you're at a high risk for hepatitis C and then inviting them to get screened. Mm -hmm. So that's one way that people are doing it. But that's not necessarily good bang for your buck because who knows it, what are like the actual specificity and how good your prediction is actually going to be until it's actually validated and you actually run and go and see how many people with hepatitis C you get out of this thing. So the other thing that's been done that's been really effective is calling people who've had previous hepatitis C diagnoses and just calling them back. So there's a big study in um, the Netherlands that did that where they called a third of the people that they called back came in and got their hepatitis C tested. So there are people that we know who have that have been lost to care. So when we talk about hepatitis C and we talk about diseases and healthcare systems, we talk about the cascade of care. So what steps do you have to go through to get from not knowing that you have a disease to being cured of a disease? So for Mm -hmm. hepatitis C, it's unknown. Then you have to test. And then there's a second test. So there's two tests that you have to do. And those are two separate visits. And you can be lost between test one and test two. What's the primary reason for attrition between those tests? Are these things that, 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 that cause a certain amount of pain or is it that humans are just kind of wild cards by nature? Well, just think about it. Like, okay, you have to show up twice within two weeks. Not everyone's going to do that. People have stuff to do. People are human, right? Like you have, we have jobs, we have responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So there will be some loss. Some people are maybe not going to want to come back. Maybe the doctor rubs, rubs them the wrong way. Maybe the clinic is stigmatizing. There's, there's going to be a whole host of factors of reasons and some of them modifiable and some of them are just going to be up to chance that you can't really change. But there is actually push to like collapse those two steps together so you don't have to have those two visits because that does reduce attrition. Mm -hmm. After your test, you have to go and get treatment. So that's another step. And then you have to start treatment and then you have to come back in 12 weeks to verify that you've done treatment. So people get lost at every step. For sure, yep. And depending on what populations you use, so if if you're working with people who use drugs, they're more likely to have chaotic lifestyles or they're more likely to have unstable housing. So you don't know if they're going to be in the same place twice if you come back a week later, where let's say if you have someone who got hepatitis C through a blood transfusion before we knew what it was, they're a baby boomer, they're like, I don't know, like 60 years old, and they have a stable job and they have hepatitis C. Like they're going to come back, prob- more likely to come back to their follow-up visit. So it's it's a very mixed pandemic, and it's in epidemiology talk about prevalence and incidence. So prevalence is everyone who has the disease, and incidence is who are the new people who get the disease within a given year. Okay. Or like within a given time period. Let's say the incidence in a year. So a lot of the new cases of hepatitis C maybe make up, at least in Canada, let's say like twenty three percent of all cases. There's like this 23% that's being replenished. Every year. That's the incidence. Or like about 23% of cases are like new cases. And those are people who've gotten it like, let's say, since 2010. Okay. That they knew hepatitis C cases. And those mostly people who use drugs, men who have sex with men. When you detect hepatitis C in someone's body, you can kind of gauge how long it's been there. Like carbon dating of some sort? Not that I'm aware of. No, but how do you know, for example, that like if somebody comes in, you can tell whether they've had it since 2010 or if they've had it for 30 years? Because people normally know when they got it. So, for example, someone who ha- and you look at like kind of their behavioral use. So if someone is someone who's used a person who's used drugs a lot, who's injected a lot 
and has had regular hepatitis C testing, and maybe they haven't gotten a test in 10 years, you're right. It can be anywhere in that 10-year window where they could have gotten it. You're absolutely mm-hmm. right. But someone who's never used drugs in their life, who's been in a monogamous heterosexual marriage their entire life, but got a hip surgery or something and needed a blood transfusion before we knew what hepatitis C was, they both have hepatitis C. So most of the people in Canada are the latter, where it's like someone got a blood transfusion or through some other way, they're mm-hmm. older, they're around, they're in their like 50s. Those are That's like, let's say 70%. And the other 30% of the population of like the total prevalent cases are those incident cases. So it's actually great news then, because if, if 70% of people who have this are already above the age of 50 or 60, then they're not really having that much sex anymore. <laughs> so the transmission yeah. sh- rate should decrease then, no? Like, is, is this going to kind of exponentially de- decline or maybe logarithmically decline to something lower than we have now? So the, the thing is, is it would still be going on in that population. And it would still be very high in that population. And we got to say, like, just straight out that that's unacceptable. And those people need to, there's no reason that there should be hepatitis C in that population. We have the tools to treat it. We mm-hmm. have, there's harm reduction techniques that can be put in place. Needle syringe programs can be expanded. Overdose prevention sites can be ex- expanded. Safe supply can be given to people. And like people can be linked to treatment and care. And I just want to circle one back to one thing, which is important yeah. when you mentioned that people are 50 to 60. So remember, these people, if they don't know that they have it, they may present with cancer. Right? And that's really expensive for a medical system. So there's actually modeling that shows that if we don't treat this hepatitis C, in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to have a crazy boom of liver cancers within Canada that are going right. to cost a mountain of money to our medical system. And that it's advantageous for us to treat hepatitis C now and to actively case find in these people to be able to treat them so we don't incur this medical cost. So not only are we saving people's loved ones, like, you know, that's someone's father, that's someone's mother. And they deserve to, and it's a preventable disease. There's no reason that they shouldn't be treated. It's just, how do you actually integrate that into care? How do you actually find this person who's a case? How, how do you make sure nobody slips through the cracks? Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard. I'm very curious. You've already mentioned twice now that one of the long-term outcomes of undiagnosed hepatitis C is liver cancer. What's the mechanism by which hepatitis causes liver cancer? Not to get into a crazy detailed biology lesson here because we want to keep it accessible, but is there is there a simple way that you can explain why specifically that outcome happens more often than not, or at least more often than others? So the way that I understand it, and this is very, very dumbed down, and okay, please. Add to me as well. Excellent. Or rudimentary. Basically, the main cell that is infected by the hepatitis C virus are your liver cells. So hepatitis, hepatic, has to do with the liver. Itis is inflammation. So hepatitis mm-hmm. is just inflammation of the liver. And this mm-hmm. virus, which causes inflammation of the liver, is exactly its mechanism of action. So it inflames, it gets attacked a bit by your body, it scars, there's scarring that happens over years, over decades, and eventually that scarring of that tissue, that damaged tissue, can become carcinomas. Okay. So not only do you get cancers, you also get this thing called cirrhosis, which is your liver, which is normally like this squishy thing that's that has like a certain plasticity. It has like this red sheen to it. Think of it like a really, really bright red apple, or if you've actually ever seen liver is better analogy, obviously. But <laughs> over a while, it becomes less elastic. It becomes scarred. It becomes stiff, and it can't do its functions as well. So another outcome of hepatitis C is liver failure. 
Okay. So before we had hepatitis C treatment, like these things called DAAs, direct acting antivirals, which is the shorthand for these treatments, the only chance of surviving hepatitis C was a liver transplant. Okay. And I know some people who've survived hepatitis C for liver transplant. They're very grateful. This got awesome man named Frank Bialystok. I mentioned in the intro that I was part of this thing called the CanHepC, the Canadian Hepatitis C Research Network, which is a fabulous, fabulous research organization that does brings hepatitis C researchers across Canada together. They do have some patient engagement with um, the trainees in the program. So you understand that these are human lives that you're dealing with, that you're studying with. And at the end of the day, I think that's also really just important in science is that we're dealing with human lives, even though it feels like our results are in a vacuum or far removed, it's important. And each one of these data points is a human life, right? Like I can be you or me in that data set. Hey, you. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you directly just for a quick second. You might have caught the quick excerpt that I read from Marcus Aurelius's meditations during our first break. I want to extend an offer. If you're listening right now, and you've been listening to the podcast, you enjoy what you hear, you want to support the podcast in any way, shape, or form, I want to hear from you. If you have a book that you really like and you want to read a passage from it, please send me a recording of you reading that passage, starting with something like, Hi, my name is insert name here, and this is a passage from insert book name here by insert author name here. I'll be picking some of my favorites and featuring them in future episodes. As always, you can send any messages to abstractcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much in advance. And now back to the episode. I'm glad that you're bringing it back to, to data because data really does have this connotation of just being very cold and, and you know, emotionless. And from what you've mentioned and from what I've seen uh, so far, you also do have a background in statistical methods. So how are you using statistics to deal with the potentially immense amount of data? And like, how do you use statistics to bring good to the world, basically? I want you to humanize statistics for us here. So there's two things. So statistics can do a lot of good, but it also can do a lot of evil. I don't know how many people know this, but the history of statistics and like the guy who invented regression is Sir Francis Galton. And this guy literally coined the term eugenics. Like this was his idea. <laughs> so the people who started statistics, like way back when biostatistics were very racist people. And so a lot of the early statistics come from this place of racism. And a lot of these mathematicians ended up being some of the people who were supporting the Nazis. And like wrote in favor of them. So statistics, it's like a double-edged sword. It can be used for bad, but it can also be used for good. So mm -hmm. there were statisticians and some scientists who ended up helping people who were part of ACT UP, which was an AIDS activism group, and help the patients understand the science, understand what was going on, what were they comparing, to be able to engage the scientists on their own terms and to be able to teach them. So the point, I guess, what you can do for statistics is to teach people how to do it's not necessarily like the right is statistics, but also study design and going back to like, what's the right question and why are you doing the science? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to show? So for example, I'm working on a project that's looking at how methadone prescribing, which is a medication for opioid use disorder. So if someone has an opioid use disorder, they can prescribe methadone and it helps them reduce their opioid use. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes with methadone use, there's a lot of dehumanizing practices that go with it, where people have to do urine screens, 
They have to do counseling. They have to identify a certain things. They have to go every day to the same place to get their medication, which is really hard to fit into any normal person's schedule. So there's a lot of these arbitrary loopholes that they had to get done that were removed during COVID. So I collaborated with a study where I'm helping do the statistics, where we're just simply descriptively looking at data where we asked 400 people in the United States who were prescribed methadone after and during the COVID pandemic, how did your clinic change? Why did they change? And then looking at what factors were associated with people having to come to the clinic less, not having to do urine screens because it's a COVID risk or, or having their counseling switched to the telephone. Like what were the factors associated with that? So that's kind of, you know, statistics where someone not necessarily has the expertise to conduct it, where you're going in and you're going to help. So, mm-hmm. and having that in the literature, so some academics can then have those arguments made, but also so it gets disseminated. Yeah, so you're kind of studying like the human experience through statistics and seeing how, I guess, humans interact with their changing environment, if I want to kind of take a big, big picture here. Well, I would say it's like a lot of the work that I've done is descriptive, where it's just like you describe what's going on. These are the percentages. This is how they've changed. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, those are some of the most important studies. So I have this idea where all data analyses can fit into three different kinds of questions. So there's descriptive, what are you trying to do? There's predictive, am I trying to predict quantities B from A and how different do those predictions from the observed? Or I'm trying to do something called counterfactual prediction, which is a causal analysis. And you're asking the question of what if? So what would happen what what if would happen if this? If I did this. So for example, an example of a counterfactual model is the one that just came out that said in the US, 130,000 lives would be saved if masks were implemented. And that's kind of a scenario where they're looking at, okay, well, if this was done, this is what would happen. Mm-hmm. So all kind of thing, all things can be brought down into, are you asking a causal question? Are you trying to make a prediction from the data that you have for future data? Or are you just trying to describe what's actually happening? Which one do you think is the most prone to error? It sounds like the what if scenario sounds like a bit of a dangerous way to go. I think they're all prone to error. For sure. They all have their different pitfalls and they all have diff- their different strengths. So, and I know that that's not a great answer, but... Um... <laughs> it's just because when you mentioned the what if scenario for the future, it reminds me of an expression I heard, which is, you know, basically telling people not to play what if with history or the past, because it's a very dangerous road to go down. So that's, that's one path we maybe shouldn't, shouldn't go down too much. But pl- playing what if with the future feels like it could be equally as dangerous. And making big claims like we could save X number of lives if we do this. Well, it almost just sounds like pontificating. So let me, so let me put it different. So this, is, so this idea of the counterfactual is from philosophy. And this philosophy and philosophy, and it comes into like causal analysis and epidemiology. And we actually use these what if questions all the time and establish this counterfactual and the big example in COVID right now are randomized control trials. Those are to answer causal questions. Randomized control trials are probably one of the greatest tools that we have. If you run the trial properly, you will get a causal answer. And you cannot say that for any other study design. So all these observational studies where there's a lot of confounding, for example, hydroxychloroquine early on, which is very famous and it's like, is it protective? Is it not? And the randomized control trials, when you, after we did them and we saw them, we're like, well, there's no benefit. But we always could have just run the trial. 
So randomized trials have actually been super, super important for COVID in determining which treatment works or not. Because when you do the randomization, you establish that what if counterfactual. Because the what if counterfactual in like actual terms is if I got like drug A at time A and you track me over to time B and you like measure my outcome. And the counterfactual to that is if at time A, I was given treatment B and you track me to time B. So we don't have a time machine, so we can't do that. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's called the counterfactual. It's literally impossible to establish, like literally. But that's what randomization allows you to do in a randomized control trial. It allows you to establish your counterfactual, and it makes asking causal questions really easy. Now, if you want to ask causal questions from observational data, that's a whole other can of worms and becomes, and you're right, it's super complicated. It's very hard to get it what signal, what's noise, chasing your tail. And there's people who do excellent, excellent research on it. It's by no means not my area of expertise, um, like causal uh, methods for observational data. Sometimes when I when I have guests on this podcast, they say things that make 100% sense to me right off the bat. And other times, there are just so many forking pathways of information I'm trying to follow that I... I I, I not only look forward to re-listening to it, but I'm, I'm, I get excited for the listeners too because I know this is just – you just open up a, a, whole, a whole box in my mind that's ready to absorb this information and, and think about it further. Yeah, so there's, there's definitely a lot more that I have to think about related to this. I, I don't think I've considered the variety of methodological approaches and experimental methods that you've mentioned today. So I appreciate that you brought those to light. Yeah, because normally your statistics and what you're actually going to measure – and your measures of effect and your measures of association are going to flow naturally from your study design. So in science, what you're taught is what's the what's your question? What's the first question that you ask? What are you trying to answer? And normally that's like, if this happens, then that. Like mm-hmm. you're the if-then hypothesis. Right. So, so start at the question, and then you need to say, okay, how do I go about answering this question? And normally how you analyze the data will follow naturally from that. So it's... Just knowing in which scenarios, what question are you trying to answer and always going back to what's the purpose? What am I trying to show? And it's like doing science for a purpose and like actually following the scientific method and not just doing a data analysis to have data I can analyze. Fair enough. So to kind of round things off then, if you were to crystallize your PhD into a research question, what would it be? What are you trying to figure out? So... I'm still my first year, but the idea right now is to basically create an evidence base to advocate for something that's called pre-exposure for prophylaxis for HIV. So we talked about U equals U and how once they have HIV, they can be given medication and they won't pass it on. But people who don't have HIV can also take medication and they won't get HIV if they don't have condomless sex and they take this medication and it's called PrEP, so pre-exposure prophylaxis. So I'm looking, and it's very well documented that it works in men who have sex with men. There's a lot of randomized controlled trials, and there's only one for people who use drugs. But it it should work the same. Their physiology isn't that different. We're all human, right? So I want to create a model showing how certain types of PrEP would work to reduce the HIV incidence and certain parameters in Seattle, King County, and potentially have that a model that could be exported to other places. But essentially, it would be one of those what-if models to see like, well, what if we did this, what would happen? And essentially, you'd be able to take this to a policymaker and being like, if you implemented this, this is what would happen. 
And if we only do this, then this is what would happen based on these set of assumptions. Yeah. So I think that is kind of the direction that I want to take it. Sure. I'm really glad you also pulled it back to this idea of policy and also maybe even industry, right? Because your research, if you're creating a model, your model will directly apply. It'll be applicable. It'll become a tool. Yeah. I just want to quickly say my consulting wasn't an industry. My consulting is, and I've not worked with industry, but I know people who have. Uh, My consulting was done with another academic institution where I did a lot of work at the University of Barcelona at um, the Institute of Global Health there for a specific professor. Sure. Am I incorrect when I say that your research can have implications in industry? Oh, no, it, it absolutely can. It okay. absolutely can. That's- Perfect. All right. I just want to make sure that we're on the same page then. Excellent. Dude, this has been tremendously fascinating. There's so much that has just come to light that I need to think about more. We're quickly running out of time, but I do want to ask you one final question. And this question can be related to your research or not. It's, it's all about how you want to interpret it. Here's a scenario. There are a thousand people listening to you right now and you have their undivided attention. What do you tell them? Times are scary right now. It could be uncertain. Call your loved ones. You don't know where they're going to be tomorrow. Say you love them. Say hello. Call that friend that you haven't called in a while and just pick up the phone and chat because at the end of the day, like this, the world in 2020 has been crazy. And I think if it's shown anything, human connections and caring for the loved ones is so important and how they can just be gone the next day, right? Like who knows what's going to happen. And that's been on my mind recently and it's just maybe it's because I'm far from home, but I think calling and cherishing the ones you love, I think, and just always remembering that and keeping that back in your mind is super important. That's perfect. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you for leaving us with those with those kind, thoughtful words, leaving us with some warm fuzzies. This was this was great. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Adam. It's been an absolute pleasure. Have a lovely afternoon and I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks. You too. All right, take it easy. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.